Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season, everything from NFL and bowl season to esports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. It's the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, that's believe, to receive your rewards. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, guys, really quick before we start, I just want to say that it's January, and that means U.S. Figure Skating's Nationals are coming up. The 2023 U.S. Championships will be held in San Jose, California from January 23rd to the 29th. I'm pumped to have Nationals return to my hometown, and I'll be at the arena cheering on the athletes and running around with various media jobs and high-performance camp activities all week. I would love to see you there, so if you're on the fence of attending, just send it. We've really got so much talent on the come up and some fantastic skaters to see live. If you see me around the arena, please come say hi. I love chatting with you guys and hearing what you guys think about all the events. I will be podcasting live from the arena, so I'm so excited to be there in person once again. There are single event tickets available, all session tickets, and championship event free skate packages as well. Just head to www.usfigureskating.org for more information on the event and get your tickets now. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Polina Edmonds. And today on the show, I'm very excited to introduce our guest. He won four consecutive U.S. championships, four consecutive world championships, and a gold medal in the 1984 Olympics. I have Scott Hamilton here today. Thank you so much for coming on, Scott. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. It's good to see you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So first question, what inspired you to pick up figure skating as a kid? Did your parents get you into it or were you self-motivated? No, it was sort of, it, um, <clears throat> it chose me. I didn't really choose it. Meaning that, uh, I, I was a very sick child. I stopped growing at age four and uh, I was in and out of hospitals for four years. And, um, by the time we got the no news at the end of the four years of we don't know what's wrong with him. We thought it was this, but it's not. We thought it could have been that, but it's not. We don't know what's going on, but um, we just recommend that you go home, live a normal life and see what happens. And so we, we went home and then our family physician sort of did a one man um, inner, you know, sort of like one of those, um, you know, he just said, okay, we're having intervention here. And um, you guys are exhausted, you're shattered, you're emotionally drained, um, you're just on the edge. So you need to take a morning every, every week, one morning off, just one morning off every week where you can sleep in, you can enjoy the ba- you know, the new chip baby, you can do all kinds of things. And uh, you just need that morning off to recharge your batteries. And uh, they were like, how are we going to do that? And you know, I wouldn't come unless I had a plan. Uh, he said, there's a brand new facility at the university where they teach kids how to ice skate from eight in the morning until noon. And it's a safe environment. He'll be there for hours. 
and you don't have to worry about him and it's well supervised and it's fun and super well populated. And so um, I went to the first, you know, learn to skate. And uh, I looked around and I saw, cause I was always the smallest and the weakest and the sickest one of my class. And I saw that I was sort of like, no pun intended, on equal footing with everyone else. And it was just sort of, you know, wow, they're, they're struggling too. Cause I was used to me struggle and, you know, I was just seeing me struggle and watch everybody else kind of do better. And now everybody was just sort of the same. And, and I realized after several weeks of doing these classes that I could skate as well as the best athletes in my grade. And that was, that was done. That was it. I'm going to be a skater because now I'm, I, it's fair. Like I could do something as well as everybody else. And I started growing again. I started developing again. It was sort of miraculous, but um, yeah, it was just sort of an accident. I just, to give my parents a morning off, I went to the rink, just a new facility. Everybody's trying out the new facility. And uh, David and Rita Lowry were running the program. I don't know if you remember them, but they were uh, really well-respected coaches. And they saw the Bowling Green, Ohio opportunity as a great opportunity. And they brought in tons of skaters and tons of coaches over the summer. And uh, it was really a great environment. And so I started skating there and that was it. That's amazing. Yeah. At what point did you uh, or your coaches feel <clears throat> like you had potential to go really far in skating um, and move past kind of that recreational standpoint? Well, I think it's it just sort of one of those things where where I grew up, I could do pretty well, you know, just because there wasn't a lot of other boys. Um, it's funny that my very first competition ever, they had to create an event for the four boys that were of that you know, kind of level of just beginner kind of thing. So it was sub juvenile men. And I came in second to us figure skating president, Sam Oksher. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're about the same age back then. And, and so, yeah, so I, I still give him a hard time about that and let that go. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was sort of, you know, uh, the Lowry's decided to take an opportunity in Buffalo, New York. So they left and um, and then I was being coached by college students. And then this um, holiday and ice skater uh, saw an opportunity to, you know, step in and build a business. And so I started taking from him. And then um, I won my first regionals. I got the news that I was going to travel and, and start working. Uh, I almost made it to nationals that year. I was, uh, you're going to love this. This is back in the, year, the figures. I was third in figures and third in freestyle. Wow. So the top three go, right? pretty good. I came in fourth. <laughs> I'm Dang lucky it. in cards too. So, um, yeah, so we realized there was something that, you know, I was kind of like, I I'd hit the threshold of my ability to improve under Herb. And so, um, they through Nancy Meese, a very famous judge from the Cincinnati area. She loved my mom. And, and she said, I got an idea. I think you should go to the wagon wheel and skate with um, Slavka Kahoot and Pierre Brene. And they were coaching Janet Lynn. And um, that first year I went to them, Gordy McKellen won his first national title. And uh, Colleen O'Connor and Jim Milnes were there and they were winning nationals. And it was a really intense training environment. So uh, they sent me there and I took from Pierre Brene because Slavka was only teaching two boys at that time, Gordy McKellen and Chris Kalis. And she didn't want to teach any other boys. She only wanted to teach girls. And Janet Lynn was her main student. So I got to skate with Janet every day, which was really exciting. And, and I was in a training environment and I finally made it to nationals. 
And they put the the novice men's event right before the senior ladies championship. Wow. Where it was Janet Lynn's last nationals. And at that time she was the most popular woman athlete in the world. And uh, let's just say it didn't go well. I fell five times in my three minute program. We came in dead last. No. So there's that. It's like, Whenever I go to nationals now and they have the novice men's breakfast, I go, who came in last? And some kid in the corner is like, it's like, you're my man. Um, you know, it's, so, and then I went back the next year because I got a buy. Because I think I won mids that year. I won sectionals that got me to nationals. Then I came in last. And then that gave me a buy to nationals the next year, which was, you know, normally I would compete, but it saved my parents so much money not to compete that I went straight to nationals and I came in uh, ninth out of 10 instead of ninth out of nine. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of time to go up to juniors. And so I was never really, I was kind of a solid regionally. Okay. Sectionally and a disaster on the national level. I was just a mess. I just, I, I just didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't compete at that level with any of those boys. So, um, I went up to junior and that was really, my mom really wanted me to make it to nationals that year in the juniors because they were in the Bay area and she, she always wanted to ride the cable cars and see Fisherman's Wharf and she wanted to treat it like a family vacation. And so we did. And um, I got in double axle that summer, uh, which was kind of like the top, that's what all the top young men were doing at that time. And um, I ended up beating two guys and came in seventh, which is really good. And, uh, and then I went back to, uh, I went back home and then I went back to Illinois and Pierre Brunet had retired. And so I was taken from Evie Scottbold and Mary Scottbold. And uh, Evie just scared me to death. He just intimidated me like nobody's business. And so I just decided, you know, it's like, oh, you know, oh, and my mom had sat me down because she was um, just diagnosed with cancer. And she said that, um, uh, I'm going to have to have some medicine. It may not make me feel good, but, and, you know, she's very upbeat about it and she was very positive. And then she said, um, but we're basically bankrupt. And so this will be your last year in skating, make it a good one. So I got Evie now pushing me, Mary loving me through it. And, um, I love Mary. Uh, and, uh, and I just sort of, put my head down and decided that if I just did what I was supposed to do, Evie wouldn't yell at me. So I was kind of scared of him, really scared of him. So I got to um, nationals that year and uh, my mom was, um, she was like in the best mood I've ever seen her in. And she had just had her left breast removed and mostly inside of her left arm. And she was wearing a wig because uh, she'd lost all her hair to chemo. Um, there wasn't really anything for her to get her through it. They were just throwing everything they could at it, hoping for the best. And so she was really suffering, but she had, she was so happy at that nationals. And I, and I said, are you okay? And she goes, I am absolutely fantastic. And it's like, is it the drugs? <laughs> is that what, they, <laughs> what kind of drugs they have you on? Mom? And she just said, um, um, we have lots to talk about when you're done, but go out and skate and have a great time. And so um, I just started landing triple Sal about two weeks before I actually, I threw it in at sectionals and I fell hard on it. And um, so I just started getting triple sal going and, um, and I went out to skate my long program. Oh no, warm up. And Evie grabbed my belt and he pulled me back and he said, don't warm up your triple sal. And I said, why? And he goes, because 
we really don't want to know if it's there or not today. Okay. Until it's time. <laughs> I go, good coaching. So I went around and landed my first jump and felt good. And um, then I went around and I just said, well, it's my last competition ever. You know, my parents are bankrupt. It's my last year. I just throw this thing and see what happens. And I landed it. And I got so excited that um, I forgot to mess up the rest of my program. <laughs> and I won junior nationals. Wow. And that was, you know, I, got, I look back on that to this day and I thought that must have been really embarrassing for those other guys that last place guy um, actually beat them all. <laughs> it's like last place guy. And there were some really talented, amazingly talented uh, skaters back then. You know, some you may know, some may, you may not. Like uh, Mark Cockrell was um, in the top four there. Alan Schramm. Uh, Mark and Robert Wagenhofer, they were all the top guys and I found a way to win. And wow. uh, what I didn't know is on the way to that nationals, my mom had, uh, was, was changing planes in Chicago to go from Toledo, Chicago, Chicago, Colorado Springs, or, you know, that whole trip. Um, and she met a couple that Mrs. Meese, um, had heard of through Carlo Fossi um who heard about me and this is before I, I i was still last place guy right and they they heard about my mom and they heard about me and carlo thought he never had a u.s man that was kind of dominant and he thought he'd like one so he, he saw some promise in me because he saw me improving each year a little bit and so he arranged the sponsorship for me and so my parents my mom met um the sponsors in chicago and she knew even before I stepped on the ice in Colorado Springs that my skating career wasn't over. And, um, and then something remarkable happened. I, I got this sponsorship. Um, I'm the junior champion. Mm -hmm. Carlos excited to have me there. Um, I'm 18, brand new 18 year old. I, I was sponsored and I, I had my own apartment for the very first time. It's called the trifecta. When you have all those three things all together happening at once, it's an absolute recipe for disaster. <laughs> I was unfocused. I was untrained. I was, I was like, I was completely upside down on my thoughts. The skating, skating was what I did every day, but it was the last thing on my mind, even though I've been given this incredibly generous, good fortune. And I went out for the nationals. I made it to nationals that year, but I have no idea how, because I was really bad all year. And I went to nationals and I actually came in fifth in figures, which was my nemesis. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Fifth in figures, my first nationals, that's fantastic. And then I kind of, you know, short program was iffy. And then I went out for a long program and I just did what I did. You know, I just, bad guy. I just wasn't trained. I wasn't prepared. And um, I came in ninth. And uh, that's the tough. crazy thing was, is I'm back to being last place guy again. And uh, that would be the last time my mom would ever see me skate in competition. So she, um, she took a turn for the worse. Uh, I was home. It was May. And I was in her room till about 3.30 in the morning when I, my brother and I went. And then um, <clears throat> the next morning, I was sleeping on the couch in the family room because um, we had people visiting to support us. It was really a bad time. And my brother-in-law just told me, um, your mother is gone. And you have to understand that she was kind of the center of my universe, like everything about my mom. 
I loved her so much. And I just, I felt bad. I mean, I mean, all the way like to my core, I felt bad because she'd sacrificed everything for me to be in skating. And I was this loser, you know, you know, I was this loser guy. And uh, I'm like, what? this feels awful. And the last time she saw me skate, I was untrained. After everything people had poured into me to get me into skating, after everything that people had sacrificed to keep me in skating, after everything everybody had ever done for me, and I'm this loser guy. And it's like, this isn't good. And so I, I, I went for a walk in my backyard and I just tried to figure out how am I gonna do anything without my mom? And uh, it was on that walk that I decided that I didn't need to, that I could, I could bring her with me everywhere I went and I could, I could hope to honor her by how I approached my skating from that day forward. And that was, that was the best decision I ever made. You know, uh -huh. if I'm running a little bit late, it's like, ah, uh, uh, honor your mom. Okay, I'll be on time. But I don't feel like doing a long program run through in the summer. We all know how much fun those are, right? <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, 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 honor your mom. And I do a long program run through in the summer. And I was on fire. I mean, I, 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 I never worked that hard. And that summer I got um, three knee triples, like solid. And I, I had lots when nobody was doing lots yet. And um, it was just sort of like, woof, this is really, this is really unbelievable. So I went to Southwesterns and uh, I did triple lots in short program. Nobody had ever done that before. And uh, then again, the long program, one Southwesterns, then I, I went to mids and I'm up against uh, the top three men in the United States. U.S. figure skating said they all had to go back, right? To the mid <laughs> they had to compete at sectionals before nationals, I guess, because yeah. they wanted them more prepared for the season, mm -hmm. right? And they wanted them to compete before they got to nationals. And so I'm up against the top three guys in the nation, uh, Charlie Tickner, Scott Kramer, and David Santee. We're in Chicago, David's hometown. And uh, I'm like... You know, I'm the guy that came in ninth last year's nationals. And uh, I went out. I was the first one to do short program. We all know how much fun that is, being the first <laughs> one to do the short program. And I won short program. I beat all three of them. Wow. And it that's was awesome. like, okay, I think something's happening here that's really good. And I ended up, um, you know, going to, I ended up beating one of them. I was third on, uh, at mids. And then we got to nationals and I beat him again to be able to go to worlds. And then um, I was uh, 11th in my first worlds. And then the next year um, I had a bad, bad, bad ankle um, injury in the summer. And then, um, so I was fourth at nationals, which was disappointing. And then um, it was, it became sort of apparent that Carlo had, had lost interest you know, in me. Um, and I talked to him about it. I said, Hey, I can go take from Don Laws in Philadelphia. If you don't really, you know, want me around anymore. Um, or I can stay, you saved my skating career. I mean, the least I could do is offer you the choice. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I love Don. I think Don's a good man. And if you went to go, you know, if you want to go take from him, I wouldn't, you know, I would, I, I wouldn't try to hurt you politically or anything. And I was like, That's so nice. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I went up to Krista right after I talked to him and I just said, I think I'm headed to Philadelphia. And she said, no, because I love Krista. I adore Krista. 
And she goes, no, stay. And I go, well, if Carla would have said stay, I would have stayed. But he didn't. And so I, I, I think it's best that I go. And then he can focus on uh, Scott Kramer, which is his newest student. And so I just said, we'll just do it that way. And, and I went to take from Don. And that changed everything. Uh, my leash was this long. <laughs> and he was wow. like a, whoosh, a taskmaster. And it was like, um, you know, I, I just had to earn his trust. And, you know, I had a reputation of being unfocused and I, you know, maybe I, I had a little too much fun sometimes. And, and I said, that's all changing right now. Okay. And he called me out at a PSA conference. I uh, said, as some of you know, I have a new pupil and I'm here to lay it down right now. There will be no messing around. There'll be no, um, a lack of focus. And you will, you will be very impressed with what my student and I are going to accomplish this year. And I was like, oh man, he just called me out in a big way. And so um, that was Olympic year. And uh, I came in third at nationals, made the Olympic team. And then uh, fifth at the Olympics, which I thought eighth would have been like winning the lottery. I came in fifth and then I went to worlds a month later, came in fifth. And then the top three guys retired. There you go. And I stepped into this thing. I was like, okay. <laughs> you were wow, number one. I'm ranked second in the world. And then from October of 1980, um, it was Skate Canada. From that competition on, I never, I never lost the competition in four years. That's so crazy. It's the Olympic poster from 84. And that's yeah. where really good things happen. And when you climb the beginning of the rainbow and you get all the way to the top, you slide down the other side, there's something waiting for you. And, and I just, you know, that year, I just, I never worked harder. It was my mindset going in is I'm, I'm eliminating, eliminating every would have, could have, and should have. Love it. That's it. That was my approach. I'm not stepping on the ice in Sarajevo going, I wish I would have worked harder or man, mm -hmm. I could have shown up more. Or man, I should have worked hard on figures. I just, I didn't want any of that. So I just eliminated every would have, could have, and should have. And um, I won. So uh, not the way I wanted to, but um, I went in with a strategy that if I were top three and figures short and long, mathematically, I couldn't lose. <laughs> and that's what happened. Wow. Did you put a lot of pressure on yourself going into those games to win based off of you winning World's nationals um leading up to it or uh, you know I, I i set weird goals that year you know i went to um i was competing out of the east i was competing for the philadelphia skating club and so i do sectionals and i do well i do south atlantics and then i did easterns and then um i went to uh nationals and i decided at nationals that it wouldn't be a victory unless I won every single aspect of the competition by every judge. And um, I had that score wow. sheet somewhere. I, I actually did it because there's always going to be a judge that thought somebody's figure was better. Yeah. Or there's always going to be a judge that said, Oh, I like that program better than that program. So I'm going to put them first, broken tie, whatever, you know, was, that was back in the old six Oh system. But mm -hmm. um, I skated figures were solid, clean, perfect. I got really good at figures. And then clean short, clean long, and I want every judge, uh, every every aspect of the competition by every judge. And 
And I knew I was ready for the Olympics. And I knew that if I skated well like that at my nationals, that the momentum was going to carry me through. And it'd be hard for a judge not to put me first, you know, if I skated well, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember getting to Sarajevo and and uh, we stopped in Paris on the way to break up the time change. And mm -hmm. it was strategic on Don Law's part because he wanted me to see how hard I'd worked on my figures. And so Jean-Christophe Simon was the best figures skater in the world. No mm -hmm. one was close. And um, we got to Paris. And he said, take a nap. We're going to skate tonight. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went back and I took a nap. And, and I, he put my patch right next to Jean-Christophe's. And I was like, ooh, man, it's going to be a rough day. It's going to be a rough hour. <laughs> and I kind of, of course, you know, as competitive skaters, we all kind of check out our competition. And I looked over in his patch and I just... I kept looking and I was like, holy cow, I can beat him. Like I can beat him. And then after that patch session, um, Don warmed, he said, warm up, we're doing long program run through. I go, we just got off a plane on a time change. Are you crazy? It's the middle of the night. I can't do any of this stuff. So he goes, no, we're, do we're doing it. So get warmed up, we're doing a long program run through. And I did a clean run through, which kept my streak alive. I think I had a streak of like 27 or 26 clean run-throughs going into the Olympics. Wow. And so I skated Incredible. clean um, and, and, that, that, and it sent a message that I'm ready, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I'm ready. So we get to Sarajevo and we were practicing in one of the hockey rinks. And I look up in the stands and Brian Orser is sitting there, right? Who's my biggest competitor now, right? I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, I'm going to show him. I'm just going to show him. I'm going to throw this long program down. And he's going to be going, oh, man. This is going to be a rough week, you know. So I do a clean run through in my long program and I'm doing the, you know, the bow at the end of the, the, the run through. And I look up and I look at Brian and he went like this. He went, is that it? Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. I just go, doggone it. He's going to win the long program. <laughs> oh, I hate this. And, um, and he did, he, he, I won the figures, um, I went, I beat Jean-Christophe five judges to four on the first figure, which was an inside rocker. And then we did uh, paragraph double three and I beat him seven judges to two. And then we got to the loop and I beat him nine judges to zero. It was probably the best figure I'd ever laid down in a competition. It, it was um, back change paragraph loop. And it was basically one line. It was, it was like one line. It was, it That's was, crazy. I've never done a figure like that before. And it was nine to zero. It was, it was just, and so winning figures changed my math. Now all I have to do is be top four or five mm -hmm. to win the gold medal. And so um, short program, it was a broken tie with Brian Orser and he won the broken tie. So I was second in the short skated really well. Um, I remember being so freaked out in the warm-up that I couldn't feel my legs. And so if I would have been the first to skate after the warm-up, I would have bombed. Like it was bad. I couldn't land a jump in the warm-up. And it was just adrenaline. I just it was uncontrollable adrenaline. So I went and I found an empty locker room downstairs and it because all the locker rooms were under the ice. Mm -hmm. And um I found an empty locker room and there was a mirror in it. And I looked into the mirror and I said, every single cuss word you could possibly imagine at me. I just told myself off. And I just, I was screaming at myself. You worked too hard for this. Blah, blah, blah. I was like screaming at myself. Cause Don would never, he was a gentleman. He would never do that. 
And I just, I, 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 by the time I got up to skate for my short program, I was so tired from screaming at myself that I had no adrenaline left. And I skated absolutely clean. I had, might have had a little bit on the footwork sequence because I kind of brushed the wall a little bit. I was like, <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. And then, um, so we broke the tie on that one. And then a long program. Um, by the time I got to long, the whole right side of my head was just filled with phlegm. And I couldn't hear out of my right ear. And I was really sick. But I didn't ever really mention that, that back then. And I went out and skated. Atlanta triple X, perfect. And then big single flip. Uh, you know, it's when you're doing a single or a triple flip at the Olympics and you see your leg right in front of you, it's not good. It's, it's like <laughs> the opposite of good. And it's like, okay, there's my mistake. And then I got through the rest of the program pretty good until the last triple sow, which I did the exact same thing in Lake Placid as I did in Sarajevo. I, I rushed it. I pulled the left shoulder and I turned into a double and uh, still came in second in the long. And then I had a very uh, interesting and challenging press conference because mm -hmm. um, a lot of the sports press says, wait, how do you lose 70% of the competition still win the gold medal? I go, well, you guys are sports guys, right? And I go, yeah. And I go, how about a team that scores 35 points in the first quarter of a football game? What are the chances they're going to lose the game? Well, n zero. I go, that's what happened here. I wanted Dang. to skate clean. I wanted to skate perfect. I wanted to skate. I wanted to do all those things. I wanted this to be the greatest performance of my life. And it wasn't. I have to live with that. But I had a strategy coming in. I stayed true to the strategy. And um, it worked. Mm -hmm. And, you, played you know, the game. I, I was, I think, I don't know if Brian, I, I can't remember if he was sixth, seventh, or eighth in figures in Sarajevo. I should know that. But mathematically, by the time I got to the long program, I had to be fifth in the long program to lose the gold medal. And I hadn't lost a free program in three years. So I thought the odds were pretty good. Yeah, that's really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Find a way to hang on. So, yeah. And then it was um, a lot of people didn't want to, you know, Olympic year, nobody goes to Worlds. But I wanted the fourth one and, the, and it was in Canada. Mm. So, you know, I really wanted to win the Olympics on Orser's home ice and uh, just sort of, you know, set a message that I, you know, I, I know a lot of you didn't like the way the Olympics <laughs> went, but I'm here to tell you it was the right result. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So I won figures in short and then uh, he beat me in the long again, but I mean, he had gorgeous triple axle and he had, he was just, and Brian was an amazing competitor and a phenomenal friend and, um, and just a good guy. And I, I really wanted him to have all the success in the world. Unless I was competing against him. Then I wanted, <laughs> yeah. Not quite all the success, but maybe the rest of the success. <laughs> so competitive. I love it. That That is really cool. It sounds like you had um, a lot of confidence based off of all of the work that you put in, but also just the repetition of competing, the routine of um, having so much under your belt and, and knowing that you could do it in the past and there's no reason that you couldn't repeat it. I feel like that's kind of something that a lot of skaters and athletes that have like one shot in front of judges struggle with is even if they are performing so well in practice and they have done well in the past, they, uh, kind of let the adrenaline get to them and they, um, don't handle that stress well on the day of, um, and then they crumble under the pressure. And, and that's really what makes, 
a champion, right? Is somebody that can handle it and perform well um, on competition day. So do you think that that's something that is made in an athlete through repetition and practicing, or do you think it's something a little bit more innate? Um, that- I don't, you know, it's hard to oh. say. I think everybody's different, right? We're all different. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one thing getting there. It's another thing staying there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I always, I think back on all those, like last, I call my loser days. <laughs> I, I think back on all those loser day competitions. And it was like, there's a reason I was at the bottom. There was a reason I I wasn't prepared to you know perform on the day, and it was I wasn't doing it right. I had to figure that out. So mm-hmm. I would I would tell young skaters just be patient with yourself, um, but persistent. You know, there's an equal equal portions of persistence and patience are good in order to get to the point where you can say I'm as good as I'm going to be. This is the best I can be, and whether you're first or Eleventh uh, or whatever that is, you can leave with the satisfaction that I worked as hard as I could because nothing replaces work. I had so many naturally gifted skaters, naturally gifted. I mean, they were gifted skaters that I had to figure out a way to beat, and and it was it was not easy. But I realized that if I maybe just show up every day on time with a great deal of intention, that I'm going to be better today than I was yesterday. If I can figure out a way to process failure uh, in a really healthy way, instead of allowing it to be a computer virus, then, you know, maybe I can rise above my circumstances. Because honestly, Paulina, there's nothing about me that makes any sense at all. Like everything that's happened in my skating life, in my life in general, Mm -hmm. is so unlikely and so undescribably like it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason in the world um, that that I should have had the career I did competitively and professionally. There's just no way. But you come down, you understand the work, and it's all repetition. It's all teaching your body how to do something and then getting out of the way emotionally. Every time, like learning triple lutz, I fell on it so many times on my hip. I'd land a quarter short. And of course, skates don't go sideways very well, especially when they're coming out of the air. <laughs> they just don't like coming down quarter short. They just don't like it. <laughs> like if you're really good and you put your toe down first, you can probably hook the landing. I just came down flat, hinge, boom, hip. And it was swollen from right under my rib cage all the way down to my knee. It was swollen. And I had a floating cyst in that sack of fluid where I never knew it was going to be when I woke up the next morning. <laughs> Some days it would be there. Sometimes it'd be up here. Sometimes it'd be back there. So I'd have to kind of place the cyst where I knew it would wouldn't bother me. And, and then um, when I had the cyst and the sack of fluid drained, um, it hurt so bad to fall on that right hip that I had to figure out a way to land it. You know, I wasn't going to quit on the jump. I just figured I had to, you know, it's got to figure out how to land it. So when I figured out how to land it, then I, I sort of paid the price in order for that jump to be mine. Like I own this thing. And, um, and I learned it, you know, as well technically as possible. And I troll skaters all the time. I go, if you learn something technically correct, it'll be your friend. If it's iffy on the technique, it may or may not be your friend when you need it the most. But every time I'd set up triple X, it was the opening jump in the program. I'd, I'd, I'd set the edge and I'd just say, relax. I, I would set the edge, relax. And I went in 
kind of loosey, a little bit loosey goosey, but not like I'm gonna make this thing. I'm gonna force this thing. You know, I was just like, relax, let it go. Mm -hmm. And I, that opening triple lots, never missed it once in competition. I tried to add a second triple lots a couple of times. That didn't go very well. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one was always that. And this is maybe for some skaters to even, you know, experiment with. It's set, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is, set it up, and then just tell yourself to relax. And whatever adrenaline you have isn't going to be muscle binding um, tension or adrenaline. It's going to be the adrenaline that allows that relaxed elasticity in your body to just like a rubber band shoot you into the air. So it's, it's a different kind of uh, controlling adrenaline. Another thing I would tell skaters out there if they're having trouble with that adrenaline and that fear is that they do a full run through their long program every single day, starting as early as you have it. Um, because when you first learn a program, there's a lot of hard corners, like, you know, that right. Yeah. Where the more you do it, those corners round up a little bit because your body is able to kind of go into that next position and it, it knows how to do it just from all the repetition and, and working mm -hmm. on it. But when you get the choreography done, just do full run throughs. And before you start the run through, this is key. You tell yourself it's competition and you scare yourself. You like you get yourself so nervous and so wound up. This is competition. This is how it's going to go. Whether in August, this is how it's going to look in January. Just put your pressure, all the pressure you can on yourself. And then um, by the time you get to January and you've done that probably a hundred times, <laughs> that adrenaline kicks in. And you go, ah, I know you. I've seen you before. And uh, I know how to control you now. And uh, it's, again, everything is just rooted out of, Repetition. I remember uh, Tamara Moscarina. Yes. Super so cool. Tamara was one of my favorite people. And we would, every year we would do a press lift. And I, I, um, she got a little bigger. I got a little weaker, so we don't do that anymore. But you know, we would do at every competition. I would, I lift her up in a press lift. And um, she said, so you do a run through every day? And I go, I do. And she goes, oh, I try that with my skaters, but they got so tired. <laughs> Well, that's funny. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they're not fully committed. Just saying. Um, <laughs> but it, it was just, you know, that learning what works and what doesn't and be willing to, you know, put yourself into a position of, oh, that didn't work. You know, when I wrote Finish First, um, we were just over coffee. The woman that helped me write it, um, a woman named Allie Fallon, phenomenal. She goes, how many times do you think you've fallen on the ice? Huh. So from... Yeah, I think I've fallen on the ice 41,600 times minimum. And the, when I tell that to people, they go, wow, for, you fell 41,600 times? They can't even imagine falling 41,600 times. And I said, yeah, but you know how disgusting I am as an optimist? They go, yeah, we know how disgusting you are as an optimist. I go, <laughs> do you know what happens to you when you get up 41,600 times? You know how to get up. It's true. And when you know how to get up, when you learn how to get up, man, it's really hard to keep you down. It's really hard to prevent you from rising above your circumstance. Um, the getting up thing is really cool. And I said that in the Rise movie and then in, uh, in some other interview. And uh, U.S. figure skating picked it up. Yeah, the get, get up, up movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was pretty fun. I was really cool. proud of that.
Yeah, and I did it. I, you know, I didn't make a nickel off that. So win. <laughs> That's funny. Every time I can do something for free, it's a win. <laughs> well, you turned professional after the Olympic season um, that you won, and and I then do. you, yes, I was broke, twenty-five <laughs> year old guy living in my best friend's parents' basement. Oh, without a Olympic penny champion to my name. Yeah, I mean, you could did make you... money back then. Well, did you get any like sponsorships or anything after being a gold medalist that helped you or was uh, Coca-Cola just... offered me a sh- uh, Coca-Cola? Uh, they were going to put me into some commercial. Um, and it wasn't a, it, for me, it was like, are you kidding me? They're going to pay me that. Um, but it would have been gone in like a week. And I, I thought, man, I could do that. Or I could go to Worlds and have something forever. That's true. Got it. So I went to Worlds because I wanted that forever. And I, I won Worlds, which is forever. And, you know, I joined um, Dick Button. He had five and Hayes Jenkins had four. And we're the only three men to do that mm-hmm. um, with the Olympic gold medal until Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan did it. So crazy. There's, there's there's four of us now. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I just figured excuse me, all I can do is lose, you know, because Brian and Brian are coming up and Fideev is doing a lot of really cool things. And I won everything. What, what's left to do except lose, you know? And I, I thought I'm broke. I've got a lot of, um, you know, familiarity with the audiences and mm-hmm. with skating audience. So maybe if I turn pro, I can, I can maybe skate for a few years and, and make some money and then either start teaching or go back to school. And uh, I didn't know. Um, I thought I had a clue when after my second year with a third year option with the ice capades, mm-hmm. I told um, President uh, Dick Palmer, I promised him I'd never miss a show or miss a press call. And he said, well, that's probably not going to happen. You know, a lot of you guys, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big workload. And sometimes you think the work is done and, you know, I don't see it, it happening, but good luck. So I did it. I never missed a show and I never missed a press obligation. And I'd even take over, you know, weeks because I, I didn't do a 33 week tour. I did a 20 week tour because mm-hmm. I just didn't, I had broadcasting I was trying to build because I didn't think I was going to be able to skate more than like four years, maybe. And so I was building broadcasting and I was doing other things. And, uh, and I was like, well, um, 20 weeks is probably better for me. And you know, so I did that. And then at the end of, I did end up doing an average of 23 weeks a year. And then at the end of uh, two years of the ice capades, he's put his arm around me and he said, uh, you know, we've gone through a sale and I was hoping to get my, my uh, option year. I was going, Ooh, three years. I'd be awesome. And he just, uh, he just said, uh, the new owner doesn't want any male skaters. He only wants female skaters. So we're wow. letting you go. Yeah. And back then, my only other option was to be Pinocchio and Disney on ice. And that, (laughs) that, that didn't really thrill me a lot. So, um, you created your own show. Well, I was given the opportunity. Uh, Bob Kane was my manager. We sat down, he's, you know, wanted to break the news to me in Florida. I was a big tennis fan and there was a big tennis tournament in Florida and we're, he goes, go out to the beach. We'll talk about next. And I go, okay. So we're sitting on the beach and he just said, I've, I've 
tried everything with the capades. They don't, they don't want, they don't want you at all. Um, I even tried to see if they would give you a week just to let them see your value. And that's not happening either. Um, they did offer me a week later on, but um, <laughs> that was at um, 20% my normal pay. And it was to prevent me from doing um, this little tour that, um, oh, let me go back. So Bob Kane, um, he said, they're, they're not taking you back. And I go, okay. And he goes, hey, but we've been talking internally. Do you want to help us start a new tour? And I remember laughing and saying, well, let me check my calendar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we started, um, I put together a bunch of skaters and they, they wanted to put out on my name at first to, to, to see if that worked. And so we did the Scott Hamilton America tour through the Northeast mm-hmm. and um, it was all college rinks and it was really fun. The skaters loved it. And uh, we, and then they said, well, we now know looking at all the trajectory and everything that we need to create a brand that will last beyond you. So we're going to mm-hmm. call the show stars on ice. And I said, great. And so they tried it with house lights and spotlights like the old Collins tour used to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess they, it was the tour of America uh, world Olympic champions. Then it became champions on ice. They did a yeah. lot of stuff in the early days with no lighting. They would just do spotlights and house lights. And he goes, we're going to try that. Cause that's really cheap. And so they did that. And then we went back to sort of more about theatrical lighting that I, all the stuff I learned about in the ice capades and they go, we really like that. And I go, let's just do that then. <laughs> yes. And, uh, <laughs> So we just, the skaters got together and we would produce the show together. And we had Karen Kresge as the choreographer. And, and then um, six years in, we were finally turning a profit. And that first tour, it was Dorothy Hamill. It was Unreal Martini. It was, oh my goodness, we had a great cast. It was so good. And we were, we were doing really well. Tyler Cranston was on that tour and it was really fun. And then and Brian Orser joined the tour. Um, Rosalind Sumner's joined our tour first year. And then um, we got to a point where something really miraculous happened. We're at the Olympics uh, 1992 in Alberville and Midori Ito was going to win the Olympic gold medal in women's figure skating. We all knew it, but um, she, she didn't. And Christy Yamaguchi did. And, uh, yes. As the reigning world champion, by the way, I don't want to take anything away from Christy, who I <laughs> love and adore and respect like no one else in my my life. I mean, Christy's <laughs> it, right? And uh, they go, what's next? And she goes, I'm going to join Stars on Ice. <laughs> I was like, okay, things are about to change. <laughs> <laughs> and we went from a 30-city tour to a 60-city tour. Wow. And Sandra Bezik came in to produce and choreograph and direct the show. And we had lighting. We had, we had everything was elevated because of now having the reigning women's Olympic champion on our tour first year yeah and it was i mean it was extraordinary it was unbelievable paul wiley was silver medalist he joined us and it was it, it was just insane you know katarina bit was with us and it just you know she was no she was she was with about no she didn't join us till later um but it was um it, it was unbelievable we were just selling out markets like crazy and and it, she just was this catalyst for interest in Stars and Ice, where we went from doing well to doing extraordinarily well. Yeah. And then the years just kept piling up, you know, one after another. They just kept piling up and piling up. It was really amazing. I thought if I skated four years as a pro, 
Um, I'm fooling a lot of people. <laughs> and I ended up skating for 20. That's so that cool. Crazy? 20 years as a pro. That was nuts. That was four years longer than my first steps on the ice to my last worlds. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And it was during such a golden age of skating because I feel like the mm -hmm. 90s were just so incredibly popular for both the fact that we had so many Olympic champions, you know, 80s, 90s, rolling yeah. into uh, early 2000s, but also with the scandal of Tanya Nancy and everything, like it just was really explosive in terms of um, the interest. And then well, I've got my own opinions about that, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I will always go back to everybody wants to put it on the scandal, you know, that all the crazy um, sort of uh, tabloid interest, you know, and <laughs> the day the skating lost its um, innocence and all that. No, I think the product was really good. Otherwise, people weren't going to watch it, right? The product Definitely. had to be good. And back then, you know, it was amateur. So you win your Olympics and you turn pro. And the marquee just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like I got pictures in my office here. I'm at the pro I'm at the CARES offices. There's this one right there with um that's um Brian Orser, Rosalind Sumner's, um, me, uh, Peter and Kitty Crothers. And um it we did a 10-year anniversary of Sarajevo in nineteen ninety-four. And it was really meaningful. It was really amazing. And it just reminds you that there's all kinds of ways that skating can be used to touch people's hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And we really mind that. We really try to do things in a really uber creative way. We try to make it super theatrical and make it accessible for the entire family. Uh, my whole thing was if I can get men on their feet, then I, that's a victory, right? So <laughs> my whole thing was, yeah. how do I get, how do I earn their respect and get them on their feet? And, yeah, you know, it's really extraordinary the way that, um, yes, that, that particular incident changed skating where the uh, NBC signed hundred million dollar contracts. And so did us figure skating based on those, on those ratings. And the, I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any way those ratings were ever going to sustain, you know, with, <laughs> so it was almost like uh, that one may have been, we, we, if we could go back and rethink that one, <laughs> we'd probably be a lot better off because there was just so much money infused into the amateur side of the sport. And Chinquanta, the president of ISU really wanted the ISU to control every aspect of all skating. And so when you've got the pro and the amateur up here and they're pulling huge ratings and, a lot of interest in the pro sides marquee keeps getting bigger and skaters would, you know, would retire and then someone would come in and take their place. And then new champions would rise. There'd be so much excitement around the new champion that when all those contracts kind of kicked in, things got stuck a little bit. And then the mm -hmm. professional side sort of collapsed under the atrophy of not getting any new champions. And so gotcha. it wasn't, you know what I mean? So ultimately yeah. it infused a lot of cash but when you look at the year 10 of those of those contracts, I remember the men's event being shown at 2 a.m. on ESPN2. It wasn't yeah. ultimately great for skating. You know what I mean? It, it's, you know, give me less and allow me to own it, right? Then mm -hmm. giving me everything. And now I have to be slave to a master, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a mentality shift in there that, 
kind of needs to happen where what's in the best interest of the industry and let's make our decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. That was like, there was no, like, it, and I always, you know, like if people ask me about it, I say, what do you think those contracts renewed at? I'll ask you, do you know what those contracts when they, when they, the end of 10 years, just guess percentage wise, what did they renew at? I would guess maybe 10% of the top of a hundred million. That's crazy. I don't, zero, zero percent. Zero. Skating became a time buy. Oh my goodness. Isn't that crazy? That's You go a hundred million to zero. Yeah. uh, Houston, we have a problem here. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So it's just that it's just, you know, but it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, as a governing body, you have to look at what's in the best interests of the the sport as you know mm-hmm. as far as if they can bring in all this they can put it into a trust and they can live off the interest they can do all these things and they can invest and yeah those are all good decisions to be made but it, it's looking at what happens next you know what happens after that so you know i i I'm, i know i'm looking back and i'm you know questioning you know those things and and i really thought it was it'd be a good thing for amateur skaters to have professional opportunities in fact i did all the pro-ams to allow that to happen back then. But mm-hmm. in hindsight, you know, I look back on that as like, that really didn't help skating a lot. It, it might've hurt it a great deal uh, because the product was so good. Yeah. And, you know, with that balance of having a destination where people could go and become these marketing machines. I mean, you wouldn't believe the skaters would go out and they would do all these things just to, you know, push their careers and advance their identities. And, and grow in their craft. And it was just this really healthy environment. And then it, it just, it just sort of, again, the pro site sort of atrophied quite a bit. Um, you know, it's, and, and on the amateur side, you know, it, everything, it, instead of it being a marquee, it, the whole sport became sort of like a pyramid, you know, with a lot mm-hmm. of attention put on the very top of it. So I know yeah. people are going to agree probably with that and that's fine. I did just my opinion. And, and I just think that, um, you know, the, the sport is so good and so exciting and so phenomenal that, um, you know, leadership is really important. And I think we've got good leadership now. I really do. I think there's a lot of people looking at how do we build the sport, right the ship? How do we, you know, grow it again instead of maintaining or managing or mm-hmm. just trying to figure out how to keep the lights on? How do we grow the industry again? And I think yeah. those those things are really being talked about now more than ever. And I think um, it, uh, it it hope I have great hope that you know that people start making really effective and strategic choices. I mean, Paulina, we still haven't had an awards ceremony for the team competition in figure skating. <laughs> I know it's crazy. No, no, no. We have it's in the Olympic Charter. They have to have one. So the year is about there, to close. Yeah. No. Leadership there is it's the in the IOC. I, I worry about the IOC. I really do. Um, I really do. Um, you know, when you look at 2002, Roga, Jacques mm-hmm. Roga, IOC, he said, No, 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 we're solving this now. The pair competition. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. solving this now. In the highest roadway, we can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's get on with the rest of the Olympics. Yeah. Um, what happened at 
what happened in, in, in Beijing was just like a non-decision. Yeah. Followed by another non-decision, followed by an indecision, followed by uh, no comment, followed by a, oh, wasn't that a sad turn of events? Mm -hmm. I was like, if that would have been handled yeah. immediately, decisively, um, I can only imagine what the rest of the Olympics would have been like. You yeah. know, it would have been, you know, it would have been free of uh, just the whole th identity of that Olympics is, you know, drug scandals and yeah, um, poorly written cloud. bylaws. And, you know, it, it was a shame. And poor Valieva, I mean, she's a beautiful, stunning, fantastic skater, you know, possibly built through science. You know, we don't know. But I mean, I'm watching her skate and just her abilities were just extraordinary and just gorgeous and amazing. And all three of those Russian women were completely different than each other, mm -hmm. you know, and they all had different approaches. Um, but, you know, I just felt, I felt bad for everybody. Yeah. And I really think that, you know, looking at how it all went down, it's, it's easy to suspend Russia, but it's really hard to investigate them. Have you noticed that? Don't we know it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a lot of power uh, preventing a lot of things from happening. And I, I understand that, but same time, you, you, if we all play by the rules, we're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting with the leadership of everything, like you were saying, um, the decisions need to happen quickly, but even just with the ISU as a whole, one of our top, um, I think like vice presidents is somebody from the Russian Federation. So I feel like that's also kind of hard to move things along when one of the top people plays for that country. I don't know. It just, it's all messy. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if, you know, there's no 15 year old girl that's going to say, can you give me a um, performance enhancing drug? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah. You were 15 once. Were you asking for performance enhancing drugs? Never, never. <laughs> okay. So there you go. So in that, I'm just throwing this out for discussion. I'm probably going to get banned <laughs> after I'm going to get blacklisted after this. No, you know, there should have been, um, maybe some suspensions or forced resignations. Maybe, maybe the sport comes first. Yes. Right? Uh, and, and you, you have to make a decision, all decisions based on what's in the best interest of the sport. And nobody loves figure skating more than me. I, I love the sport. I love the art. I love, I love the opportunities that come with you know, even watching your swizzles in, in Santa Rosa, it's like, <laughs> nobody does swizzles like that. No one in the world ever does swizzles like that. It was really Thank fun you. to see skating again. But it's just that. It's like, it's not just one thing. It's the whole thing. And I love, mm -hmm. you know, decisions that have been made to enhance and increase opportunities in synchro skating. Uh, theater mm -hmm. and Ice is amazing. Showcase competitions. Yeah. All these adult, adult nationals. I mean, it's solo dance it's all these things that are really great at allowing people to be met where they are yes it's more inclusive and allowing sure. them to be successful for who they are and what they have to offer to the sport mm -hmm. unbelievable mm -hmm. it's so great but leadership is key yeah definitely. and i think we've gone through patches of leadership that You know, make well-intended people just making decisions without long-term mm -hmm. health. 
as part of the decision-making efforts. What and, you know, you again, it's easy help? now to look back. What do I think? I don't know at this point. I think having a established um, champion that would build a professional career, just get out and just, you know, hey, Spanky, let's put on a show, you know? A little rascals reference. I'm, I'm old. You have to deal with me. <laughs> but having a Olympic champion that just really wants to build something. I mean, you see it in the music industry, you know, like my heroes were all like Bruce Springsteen because he worked harder than everybody else. Neil Diamond, because he showed the joy on stage that no one else. I mean, you just knew that he loved every minute of being there. And so did you. And then Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, you know, it was like, he wasn't, he, he, he was so brave in his choices. I go, I want to be like those guys, you know? And I think if we have more of that, of just like, how do we build something really cool? Mm-hmm. And, you know, John Curry was one of those really kind of bold guys that say, I, I want to skate the way I want to skate. I'm not mm-hmm. a corporate skater. I, I really want to skate to an audience that wants to see my art, me. Tyler Cranston was the same way. Torvald Dean were the same way. Even Brian Boitano and Katarina Vitt, when they started there too, the same way. They just really wanted to present skating the way that they felt an audience would really love it. And mm-hmm. while they were, you know, staying true to themselves. And and I think that's what's missing right now. I think a lot of skaters, when they turn pro, they don't know what to do next. You know, they're not really sure because there's nothing established. You know, Stars and Ice still exists. And, you know, skating is still gigantic in, in Japan and in China and and in Korea, there's still a lot of opportunities there. And in Canada, you know, in, in some respects. But it's not the same as when, like, a Peggy Fleming wins the Olympics and then people are spinning the turnstiles or Dorothy Hamill yeah. and everybody's spinning the turnstiles and getting their hair cut to be just like her. That doesn't exist. And I think in order to, to bring skating back, something like that is going to need to exist again. And yeah. it's just, you know, like the, the Mary Lou Retton phenomenon and all these different phenomena that can happen at Olympics. Um, but then, you know, Olympics, you know, it's, it's how do you get noticed at the Olympics when it's on 24 hours a day on five different networks? You know, it's like the chosen it's four fair. or five. Yeah, right? that's true. And, and, and they get all the marketing and that's fine. That's fair. They earned it. Um, but it's like, Where's the anticipation of, okay, I'm at work. I got to be home by seven so I can watch the Olympics tonight. You know, right. I, I, I don't see that as being the same as it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's just, you can, it's, 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 it's here. It's, it's on their tablets. It's, it's kind of everywhere. And in that it's sort of, to me, it sort of waters down the impact that an Olympics can have. And I don't pretend to know everything. I just have opinions. And I don't mind because I'm, you know, yeah. not the grumpy old man yet. <laughs> Give me about two more years. I'll be the grumpy old man. But it's just that. It's just like, how do we strategically promote and present these sports to be an open invitation for millions of children to say, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's all grassroots. Everything yeah. is grassroots. And if you can build the sport from the bottom up and uh, man, I think, you know, it's, it's where I live in Nashville. They have now more people playing hockey in this town than ever before. And their fan base is absolutely locked down solid mm-hmm. because every kid that plays hockey wants to see the best players. 
Yeah. And it's exciting. So it's the same in, you know, how, what do we do? How do we do this? I think that, you know, we allow our champions to become these incredible role models and ambassadors and people inviting others into the party in a really cool way. And the way you present yeah. the sport to the public is something that should be strategic in a way that allows for people to get so excited about it. They can't wait to see their kids on the ice. You know, that's true. So I think, you know, it, it's just common sense. How do you do that? Yeah. They're, they're smarter people in marketing than me. Um, I knew how to market me. I, I, you know, and I, I can see where things are missing in the sport. And mm -hmm. I, and again, I love, I love the sport so much and I love the skaters and I admire them. I love the judges and the officials because of their um, selfless uh, commitment to the sport. I, you know, I love everyone. I just think as we manage and grow the sport, I think one thing that can happen is if you have somebody in leadership that wants to control every aspect of it, Tough. that's probably not going to work out. Yeah, not not going <laughs> to be great. It's not in the long run. The short run, maybe somebody's going to make some money, but mm -hmm. in the long run, it doesn't work. But again, you know, it's, it's having good leaders that have the um, integrity and the um, uh, viability and the feasibility and the um, overall health of the sport mm -hmm. in every decision-making process, not just the governing bodies, but the sport itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and I do think there are a lot of those people there. It just takes a couple you know, one or two decisions here or there to kind of like uproot everything and, and, uh, and send it off its path. But man, I've never been, I was so proud of team USA this year, the stories, the, um, the intensity, the desire to compete hard and well, um, Nathan, the way he threw it down, um, the dance teams were spectacular. Um, you know, the, our, our pair teams were, were great, you know, and just to yeah. see, um, Alex and Brandon win the world championship. Uh, awesome. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a good time for skating. If we understand how to leverage it, you mm -hmm. know, leverage everything that's happened in just the right way. Um, you know, and when I look at, um, that quad axle that was done in Lake Placid. Crazy. Without, without one seat occupied, <laughs> it shattered my heart. Yeah, that is yeah. classic. There was a good crowd for Skate America, though, to see the quad axle. Yeah, <laughs> but it yeah. is a smaller arena, um, yeah, skating well, facility. But yeah, yeah, I like it there. I love it there. Yeah, yeah. it's it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I have a commentating question for you, since you were a skating commentator for so many years, um, and your voice is so loved and recognized by um, everyone in the skating community because of the positivity, specifically when people hit their jumps, <laughs> their elements, everybody knows the Scott Hamilton voice. Um, so was commentating something you always wanted to get into and what like was your criteria for good commentating? Like what are the specific notes that well, you That's tried a good to question. Make? Okay. So first things first, I want to get into commentating because I saw it as a way of making money. Because <laughs> again, I didn't have any any faith in because male figure skating didn't really have a path back then. You know, you you just you hope for a job and then you step into it. And you know, if I were Canadian male winning the Olympics, oh yeah, 
I'd never buy another meal in my life. Interesting. Um, <laughs> if, if I were female American winning the Olympics, woo! But there was nothing for male skaters back then. He had kind of figured out and make it happen. But um, so broadcasting was a way for me to kind of ensure that I could have a career in skating. Mm-hmm. And I, I failed miserably at first. I, was, I wasn't very good because there wasn't enough opportunities for me to learn and grow. And like I do a competition, then a year later, I do another competition. And it's really hard to get better doing that. And so we got to the 92 Olympics and um, I'm the next voice after Dick Button, which nobody really wanted to hear. They all love Dick Button. And so the, the television critics weren't really very nice to me and, and, you know, probably rightly so. I had this big, huge research binder that I had filled out. There was never going to be a moment in the Olympics where I didn't have something already written to say. That's a big circle slash. Um, the worst <laughs> thing you can do is that. So after the pair event, I got wind of all the bad reviews. And I realized that I wasn't, I was relying too much on preparation of me instead of preparing to cover the event. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, instead of me preparing me to be me and to be like me, <laughs> I I wasn't I wasn't genuinely responding to what was in front of me. Gotcha. So we get to the men's event, short program. I'm standing next to Vern. He's looking at me like, are you okay? And I just picked up my research binder. I turned to my right and I threw it in the wastebasket. And I said, Vern, I got nothing. (laughs) And he was, okay, this is going to be interesting. And every Olympics, every broadcast, I just... Uh, you know, I look at whoever I'm sitting next to, whether it be Vern or Sandra or Tom, Hey, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, we're just going to run. We're just going to jump on this train and ride it as hard as we can. And so, um, yeah, I, I just did that. And, uh, and I say for anyone that wants to get into broadcasting, you, you just got to be honest and be yourself. And, and you're the, you're the person that is there to honor that skater's commitment to their craft and to their moment. It's not your moment. It's their moment. And that was the mistake I made right out of the gate was trying to make it me, right? I'm the commentator. Mm-hmm. I'm the broadcaster. I'm going to make this about me. It No, that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is just to inform, enlighten, and entertain the audience as to why what they're seeing is great or interesting or what this skater, you know, what this means to them or trying to keep it really super positive because if people are going to step away from their lives to be entertained and inspired and enlightened, the last thing they want to do is have it be an extension of every other aspect of their life, which is, you know, criticism and negativity and everything else. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, we're there to, you know, really highlight showcase and celebrate the skaters achievements. And Mm -hmm. I think if, if broadcasters can do that, I think they're going to be very successful. And, you know, maybe the world's changed a little bit. We got a lot of social media going on right now, which I think television puts a lot of stock into and, and that's fine. You know, it's their business. They, they can do whatever they like and that's great. But I do think the, the best broadcasts I've ever heard really just celebrated what was happening in front of that audience that they could join alongside and be as excited as the people watching it in the arena and under maybe not understanding every um, nuance of the sport, but just knowing that what they're seeing is um, being received incredibly well, and that 
they they get the privilege of watching this thing, the privilege of watching this performance and saying, I remember that. That was amazing. And just being so happy they made the commitment to see it. I love that. That's amazing. It's very um positive. And yeah. I feel like <laughs> guilty. <laughs> but it's great. It's like warm and friendly and welcoming to watch. It doesn't feel like you're you're not a part of it, um, essentially with like lingo or types of phrasing that um people can't either understand or relate to. So I think it sounds great. I, for one, am super happy when I look up my Sochi performances um, mm-hmm. that you're one of the commentators on it. You and Sandra Yay! are just like, great. I'm like, yes, yeah. I can hear it. We came about at it from two <laughs> whole different directions. You know, uh, Sandra was, you know, sort of the heart um, of the performance, you know, just she wanted to get in touch with your heartbeat and your you know, artistic vision and, and <laughs> totally. the humanity of it all. And I was more the sports guy, you know, yeah. like, here it comes. You yeah. Know, here the go. excitement. It was a perfect yeah. blend. That's it awesome. Was really, I, you know, looking back on all those years, you know, and, um, you know, I, I was in Denver uh, and I went by some street performers and they were, um, they were singing a Beatles song and it was that the picture of Sarajevo that's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, we skated that Beatles song and it just, I, I just thought of Sandra first and, um, I wrote her a little text and thanked her for all the the times that she made me look good in stars and ice. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just gratitude. If we can lead with gratitude, we're, yes. we're probably going to be okay. Absolutely. Well, my last question for you is about, um, your philanthropy, the Scott Cares Foundation, um, and kind of some of the events that you put on with it. I know that you do the Skate to Eliminate Cancer. You've done uh, an evening with Scott Hamilton and Friends Galas, and they just look so incredible. Um, so yeah, can you speak a little bit about um, your foundation and, and the events? Yeah. So, um, you know, about an hour ago, we were talking about, my, <laughs> my, <laughs> you know, well, it's about losing my mom. And when I lost my mom, I became a fundraiser. I just wanted to raise money wherever I could to fund cancer research to see if we could figure out a way to prevent another 18-year-old boy from losing his mom because that's too young to lose a mom. And uh, so I did that wherever I could, however I could. And it was two months shy of 20 years of losing my mom that I'm diagnosed with cancer. And in that, I realized how much was missing in the cancer journey and, and um, that those gaps needed to be filled. And so um, I was working with the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I had a lot of uh, um, momentum out of that year. You know, a lot of people were very supportive and very compassionate to my journey. And, and so we were able to do some things to raise money. And um, I just said, we need, to, we need to look after some things here because they were just starting their cancer center then and they wanted to do it right. And I said, they're, first of all, information. Um, patients are flying blind. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, when I asked Dr. Bukowski, who I love and who's on the board of CARES, how sick am I going to be with chemo? He just said moderate to severe. And I thought, well, that's medical journal language. What does that look like? And he said, moderate to severe. <laughs> and I go, so it's different with everybody. Um, how do I manage that? Well, we had some tricks to the trade. But I just felt like I was flying blind. I didn't know what chemo was. I didn't know how it was going to be administered. I really, I didn't know. And they were explaining it as I went along. 
but it really been would have been better to not only prepare, but to also, when I hit those stumbling blocks, know kind of how to get past them. And so we, uh, first things first, we created a mentorship program where we pair newly diagnosed patients with survivors who work as mentors and role models. And then we, we for five years, I, I fundraised to build a website called chemocare.com where every chemotherapy question is answered in eighth grade English and Spanish. When I went online, after I got my diagnosis, um, all I could find was 12 syllable words, sometimes through to a sentence. And I was like, okay, no, that is not fair. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to be sick, really. Like, oh, that bell, do you hear that bell? Could you hear that bell? No. Wait, let's see if it goes again. They do it again. So if you hear a bell in the background, I'm at the proton center where the foundation offices are. And when somebody rings the bell, it means they finished treatment. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I love hearing wow. that bell. Yeah. So, um, and then it was, you know, so we, CARES stands for the Cancer Alliance for Research, Education, and Survivorship. And now we've done all the education survivorship pieces. Uh, we're working on the alliance every day, but the research thing is where our focus is now. And we just know there's a better way to treat cancer. Treat the cancer, spare the patient harm. That's it. Easy peasy. Treat the cancer, spare the patient harm. And if we can do that, now we're giving people their lives back and their real lives back. And so we invest in um, immunotherapy programs where T cells that are in our immune system are, are um, taught how to recognize and destroy the cancer. And over the last two years, we've learned a lot about our immune systems, haven't we? Um, but this is... This is remarkable that um, two years after we put that stake in the ground, the first immunotherapy drug hit the market. So we were right. Wow. We were right to, to commit to that early as our identity. It's like there's no reason in the world, knowing what we know about the human body, that we have to destroy it in yeah. order to heal it, right? Yes. You know, so many times, you know, um, you'll hear about a child, the best thing they had was just mountains of radiation, right? To get a mm -hmm. child through their cancer. And at the end of it, they say your child is cancer free. And we are so sorry. Because that child may never speak. That child may never grow hair. That child may never ever be able to um, attend school or um, get married and raise a family. They, their, their lives are over. They survived. That's it. They survive. So I believe um, that we have to invest towards the future, that we have to um, give those research scientists everything they need in order to create the next miracle for the worst cancers. We're just finishing up um, funding a study for brain cancer. Um, there's 43,000 research uh, programs going on right now. And 0.09% are this brain cancer. Wow. Want to talk about bullies? You want to talk about hope um, or lack thereof? You know? So we decided to step into that gap and just mm -hmm. invest. Um, we, it took us a couple of years to raise the money, but I rode 444 miles on a bike to raise the money. We, uh, <laughs> we've wow. done all kinds of things to raise the money, right? So um, that's what we need. We need people to join us. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, we have our 1984 campaign where um, 1984 was very good to me. And so we, we asked people to go to scottcares.org um, slash donate. And um, 
and they can join the 1984 campaign where they support us for $19 and 84 cents a month. You know, if they can afford that, um, they can really help us, you know, uh, really solidify our foundation so that all that money can be working and get to the research scientists that really need it. And it's all a numbers game. You know, some research programs are um, 300,000, some are half a million, some are one and a half million, you know, it's just um, really looking through everything and funding what we feel is um, a, the most promising and B will really advance the research into other forms of cancer um, where I even heard at the Moffitt Cancer Center recently, um, they came up with this thing called CAR-T, CAR slash T. And it's a T cell therapy that's designed to treat lymphoma. And wow. um, the doctor there is this amazing man named Dr. Wu. And um, he was taking us on a tour of uh, their new 164 bed infusion center. Yeah, and um, kind of messed me up because um, I I knew it was going to happen in every one of those rooms. I knew the families that were going to be impacted. I knew what those people were going to be feeling. And I got in the elevator and I was just, I just couldn't breathe. And he said, he goes, I know, I know. And he was very compassionate. He said, with the, um, you know, with the, with what we're developing now, uh, these infusion rooms will see a lot less trauma. And that gave me some hope. And then then he knocked me down in the luncheon right after that tour. He said, using the CAR-T platform, we feel 100% confident that in the next 10 years, we will cure multiple myeloma. Wow. I, I, have you ever heard anybody in cancer say the word cure before? No, they no. say increase better outcomes, yes. prolong life, prolong mm -hmm. the quality of life. No one ever says cure. They use words like remission, um, cancer-free. They never use cure. Right. And he said it. And it just knocked me down. It's like, we're going to cure cancer. We can do it. But we can only do it together, right? There's no no silo, no one person, no anyone. I'm, I'm you know... I'm so dumb. I had to fund a website to you know, teach me how to, to you know, describe chemotherapy to the masses in eighth grade English and Spanish. So it's, it's that we, you know, our why is to save lives and our how is to do it in ways that didn't exist before and to do it um, with, you know, our what is um, immunotherapy. Our own bodies have produced the cancer. Our own bodies should be able to detect and destroy it without destroying the body. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a proton center, very precise form of radiation. It targets just the cancer cells. And there's, there's no, like if I were to take my you know, traditional radiation is this, right? Can you see light coming through my hand? Yeah. Right there? The red light. So that means that that light, which is photon or X-ray energy, which is traditional radiation will go into the body until it runs out of energy. So yes, it will it will release its energy on the cancer and destroy it, but then it keeps going. Yeah. It until it more. stops. So a proton is a particle. It's the proton from a hydrogen atom and they can control it with superconducting magnets and stop it wherever they want to. 
So now instead of having this bathe through radiation, you have a sniper <laughs> who's just injecting these hydrogen protons into the tumor itself and it disrupts the cell and, and um, that's how you cure cancer with protons. But, you know, we know there's a better day and we're just working towards it. And so we'll do anything and everything we can to bring people together, common mission of, of changing the way people are treated for cancer and allowing people to be treated that couldn't be successfully treated before. It's incredible. And research is the only way to do that. Yes. That's, yeah, it's crazy. It is, um, yeah, cancer just touches so many lives. I feel like every single person knows at least one, one in person. two men, one in three women. Yeah. One in two men, one in three women in this country will be diagnosed with cancer. 1.9 million people will be given a cancer diagnosis this year. 69 people an hour die of cancer. Yeah. How are we doing? How are we doing? We have to do better. Yeah. And so that's it's chilling. That's, that's what I do. What I do, you know, yeah. and I, I love it. I, I, you know, I, I need, I have so much to learn, but, um, you know, passion fuels everything. Mm -hmm. well, and just showing up. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing, um, to just see how you've built like you said, when you, when you finished the Olympics, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. So you've had to kind of go out and make your own opportunities, um, in the last, I don't know, what is it been like 30 years, more than 30 years. years and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, no, but, you know, yeah. just for your skating viewers there of anyone that's ever stepped on that Olympic podium and received an Olympic gold medal. I'm not saying this for any other reason than just to like I've had to process this, I'm the most unlikely. There's no way. Adopted, I wasn't even, you know, birth mother gave me up for adoption. School mm -hmm. teachers for parents, no money, no training facility, no, um, you know, there was never any sort of um, legacy. Where I skated was a brand new facility with nothing. We started from scratch. And then, you know, just, you know, just coming out of an illness and, and it, it's extremely unlikely, but, you know, for your listeners and your viewers, it's like, why not you? Why not? Mm -hmm. Just work, just showing up. It's just processing failure. What if criticism only came in two forms? Um, opinion and fact. And what if criticism wasn't painful? where you could just take the opinion thing and delete it. And you could take the fact criticism as a gift. Ooh, wouldn't that be something? I like that. What if, what if failure was 100% information where you didn't have to take that failure, put it in a bag and carry it around with you for the rest of your life? What if it were just information that didn't work? Let's try it another way mm -hmm. or something else. Do you realize how liberating that would be? Super. But it's the same thing in everything. You know, it's um, it's all in the response. Whatever, you know, hand we're dealt, it's in the response. It's how we respond to it that allows for it to take on whatever quality it's going to have. And so, you know, whatever people are going through out there, you know, 
it's, it's, you know, we're going this way. That's what somebody told me recently. Cause I, I struggle with, you know, why could I have been a better son? Why did I fail at that relationship? Why was I, you know, given an opportunity and I messed it up? And my mom, that was the last time she saw me. So why, why did, why, you know, I keep going over all of those things and I just, I'm, I'm completely involved in guilt. And a, a pastor friend of mine, um, he said, no, 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 we're going this way. <laughs> he just pointed both fingers in front of me and said, we're going this way. And then my old golf pro from Denver, you know, he just said, buddy, there's no, there's no future in the past. That's true. Right. Yeah. And it's liberating. It's yeah. liberating to know that, okay, I can't, can't do a thing about any of that. So let's just, let's just make tomorrow the best day that I've ever lived. And then one after that, even better. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's, let's go, let's operate in that instead of just allowing all these mm-hmm. other negative things to completely control, disrupt and destroy our lives. You know, right. it's, We've seen so much despair in our culture. And I would encourage people, whatever you've been through, whatever you've endured, um, choose to step into the next in a really powerful, positive way. And it's remarkable the response you'll get. I love that. Wow. What all comes out of my faith? It's all Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's just... The more I learn, the more I can't wait to learn. And um, I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. Very I want cool. that for everybody. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much your stories, um, all of the insight that you have. I hope you're able your to edit it down to like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it it was it was really awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.